be in Revelation chapter 19 tonight. So please open your Bible to there, Revelation 19. <clears throat> we have seen now uh, over these 19 chapters that John, by the way of Revelation, and, and by the way, remember, that's what apocalypse means, actually. It means revealing, it means to unveil. It doesn't precisely mean like end times destruction, although an end of this age destruction is revealed in this book. But nevertheless, we've seen a number of times through this book, through Revelation from John, two contrasting views. There is, for example, the mark of the beast that the people in the world receive. And then there's also the seal or the mark of the Lord that the people of God take upon themselves. There is also the response to the second coming from the world. And then there's also the response contrasted to the the saints at the second coming of Christ as well, the response of the church. And here in chapter 19, if we pull back just a little bit, we could see another dichotomous uh, example once again. There are two uh, views of a supper in view, uh, two feasts in view, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we covered a couple weeks back, and then followed then by a description of the victorious Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a second feast, much different than the first one, and this one's called the Great Supper of God. So, Joel Beakey notes that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of both of these feasts. He is central to the wedding supper where he is the bridegroom and the lamb, but he is also the king riding on the white horse at the supper of the great God. And so there is much to understand in this text, so let's get to it, let's read it, and then we'll ask the Lord for help in prayer at the reading of God's word in Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and it is the false, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for your help as we come to this text. Uh, this text showing us wonderful and glorious things and also... Uh, and terrible and 
obviously destructive and, and deadly things. And we ask for understanding, Lord, that we might understand your word faithfully so that we would represent you rightly and think about you rightly, Lord. Let our every thought of you be true and right so that you would be exalted and praised correctly and because you are worthy of that, God. So we need your help. Please, Holy Spirit, bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you remember, there's, there's much repetition found here in chapter 17 all the way to the end of 19. We are again and again shown something of the last day when Christ will return to rescue those who are his and to pour out his wrath on his enemies, to judge those who are not in Christ, and to make all things new at the same time. So this story is recapitulating again and again to show us with greater clarity what God has done and what he's working to complete. And even before chapter 17, though, which, by the way, again, chapter 17 through 19 is the sixth cycle of visions, we were shown something about this last day much earlier in the book, way back in 6.12, chapter 6, verse 12, and that was the second cycle. Revelation 6.12 says, When he opened the sixth seal... I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. And it goes on like that after those verses with similar language and imagery, and the same kind of thing is mentioned with the seventh bowl and also the seventh trumpet. But here in this section, in chapter 19 especially, the references on the last day and the second coming of Christ are concentrated and they're, they're more detailed. And they culminate here at the end of 19. And after this account, there'll be one more recapitulation, a final one, with the events covered in the middle of chapter 20. So remember now, though, that in the beginning of chapter 17, the judgment of the great prostitute was first declared. And then in chapter 18, the judgment of Babylon. Remember, Babylon is the name of the great prostitute. Now, there have been many Babylons in history, But interestingly, in chapter 17, at the end of it, she is said to be judged and receive wrath, not directly from Christ himself, like we read here at the end of 19, but will be devoured by the beast upon whom she once happily sat on and was in fellowship in and partnered with. And the kings, symbolized by the ten horns on the beast upon... um, upon that the beast's head will also be opposed to this Babylon, this great prostitute. And we see that sort of thing happening as well all throughout the ages with these so-called little Babylons and, and the destruction of kingdoms and the emergence of new kingdoms, but a final display that will take place at the end of the age. That's what we're seeing here in chapter 19. For now, though, recognize that at the end of time, the great cities, the great cultures of the world, which are always seducing men and women to worship, the things of this world instead of the creator, they will be judged. And at that time, not simply through means as God does permit uh, their self-destruction like through the ages, like with the so-called little Babylons, but now directly through Yahweh and specifically the Son of God, this destruction will come about. Throughout the ages, the beast and all that he symbolizes will turn on the great prostitute and all that she symbolizes and will devour her as we read in Revelation 17, 15 through 18. We see that again in the rising and the falling of, of kingdoms, of nations, of empires. These two, who ever since the fall, have worked in close unison together to distract and to deceive mankind, will in the end, finally and lastly, self-destruct. 
Uh, this is the judgment of God poured out upon the prostitute. And Revelation described that. 18 described that to us. And then at the end of the age, notice here in chapter 19, we find a description of the judgment of these other two figures. So Babylon has been destroyed, but now there's two other figures that are in view here in chapter 19. The, the beast and the false prophet. And so let me read 19 to 21. Look at verse 19. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So here we have a description of the judgment of the two beasts that were first introduced to us back in Revelation chapter 13. The beast is captured. He loses. Uh, this is the beast that John sees rising from the sea in 13.1. And along with him, the false prophet is captured. This false prophet, remember, is no other than the second beast, the one that rose up from the land in 13.11. This is the one who deceived men and women to receive the mark of the beast. And we talked about that before, then to worship the image of the beast. It's religious in nature. It, is, it might be secular from our point of view, but it's still a religious thing. So these two will be captured by Christ and his army, and they will be, we read, thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We'll get into this, I think, more next time. But thrown alive into the lake of sulfur, it, it, it does away with any concept of annihilationism. It is an eternal punishment that is in view here. They're thrown alive. They're going to experience what this lake of fire and the sulfur. And those who belong with them and follow after them, we read, will also be slain then by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. That is to say, Christ. Not a literal sword. Right? Again, this is revelation, it's apocalyptic imagery, it is using things to represent truths and realities. So this is an actual sword coming out of his mouth, but it's, it's said of that to represent the very word of God. Remember what the apostle says in Hebrews 4, speaking of Christ Jesus, who is the living word. It says, for the, living, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. So there's this sword that comes out of the mouth of the Lord also, I, let me see if I can find this. Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 49.2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That's, is, that's Isaiah speaking of Christ. And there he says that you made my mouth like a sharp sword. And so just like God, by the power of his spoken word, brought everything into existence and gave life. We read about that in Genesis 1 and all the way through 3. The point here is that by the same spoken word power that, Christ, that he has, Christ will destroy. And God says this of himself, his powers and his right to create and to destroy back in the Torah. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, and this is the Lord Yahweh speaking, he says, See now that I, even I am he, 
and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And we see that here in Revelation 19. Who is going to save this, this beast, these two beasts, the beast and the false prophet, prophet, and those who follow after them? There is nobody. God Almighty is not ashamed of this, and neither should we be. He does what is right. And don't forget as well that God's wrath was poured out upon the Son of God so that some would be saved. And so people must bend the knee now to Christ and be reconciled to God through Christ while there is time. Because certainly time will run out. That is one of the things that this, that this text is saying. Of course, you know, many a person's clock runs out before this great day. But we're seeing here that all of history is building up to this point when there will be no more time as well. And so with the end of chapter 9, the return of Christ has again been described to us, there will be no more time, that is, to repent from your sins and trust Christ. And it's because when he returns, he will pour out his wrath upon all of his enemies. All will be slain who do not belong to him. The beast, again, which represents those political powers that persecute, representing nations and kings and armies who oppose Christ and all who belong to him, will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, the place of eternal unrest reserved for the enemies of God. And the same thing with the second beast, Second beast, again, is this false prophet who represents the social and religious and economic institutions that the evil one uses to urge the worship of idols, to urge idolatry, and ultimately in that, to have them worship the satanically empowered first beast. I, I saw something just today. I feel like I need to say it because I saw it today, but I'm not wanting you to look this up, but to just to at least be aware of it. There's some new artist, a woman, I, maybe she's not new, I don't know, I don't, I'm new to me, called Doja Cat, and she has a new video, and it is, it is brazen, the, 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 the demonic, devil-glorifying things, words said in the video, and the, and the imagery in the video, I mean, that is exactly Babylon and this false prophet seducing people to worship the beast, that is a, is a clear picture of it. I mean, if you may want to watch this, don't watch it around little children. <clears throat> this false prophet and the second beast will also be judged and thrown in like a fire, we're told. And don't overlook that at the end of the chapter, all those who follow after these two will also be slain. In verse 21, we read, and the rest were slain by the word that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged. They were filled with their flesh. It is the, quote, great supper of God. And you don't want to be at this table. It is a picture of destruction of everything, creation and every principality that is opposed to the Lord God omnipotent, with birds feasting. That's, there's an allusion there to Ezekiel 39, but we'll save that for next time when we get to chapter 20. The passage describes the judgment that will come upon people at the end of time. You see that, I hope. Uh, this passage refers to the judgment of people. That is to say, all people not in Christ. Because a person that is not found in Christ, or, or a person who is found in Christ, I should say, won't receive judgment because Christ stood in your place and took it for you nearly 2,000 years ago. But what's described here is the judgment that is reserved for those who are not in union with Christ Jesus. And so again, in the vision, we see two beasts and the multitude of people that follow them. But we should remember that these beasts, they're not like spiritual creatures. 
uh, or something like that. They, they, what they are is representations of specific offices or positions of other people. People who are not saved and who have positions of power within governments, people who are kings, people who are governors, who are politicians, people who are within armies, people who teach false things, people who are religious leaders and involved in false religions, people who use their fame and wealth uh, and prestige to lead people away, people who use the powers of seduction and, and might to turn away mankind and deceive them. That's what these, these beasts are. They're not like creatures, like some sort of animal or, or angelic spiritual creature. They're representative of certain offices of people. They're the ones, they're ones who are living in the flesh and under the sway of the red dragon described back in chapter 12, who have bowed before it and joined in his rebellion and who now do its bidding. Put another way, these are the ones with office and cultural power who have taken the mark of the beast like everyone else who's not in Christ, who at the end of the time will be judged personally by Christ and, and judged severely, mind you. This is what is symbolized here in Revelation 19. And that's what the announcement of the angel of verse 17 tells us. We read there, He cried out with a loud voice, and he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And so we end chapter 19 being shown by God the second coming of Christ, and we're shown what will happen to those who reject or who never heard the gospel. When Christ returns, that prostitute Babylon will have been ravaged. When he returns, he will kill the beast from the sea, he'll kill the beast from the land, and all those who have followed after them. And remember again, those, they're representative of types of people, people with office and cultural power and influence. People who trust not in Christ, but who trust in this world and themselves. But is that all that there is? Is there anyone else left to judge at that point? I mean, who is left to be judged in the narrative of the book of Revelation? The two beasts in Babylon have been judged. Who is left of the enemies of God? What are the loose ends need to be tied up before the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the answer is that that red dragon must also be judged as well. This dragon, the ancient serpent, is, a, is seemingly a spectator at this point, watching all of this take place, watching all of his plans come to ruin, as far as the narrative of the book of Revelation is concerned, at least. Uh, the enemies of God have, in a way, been falling like dominoes. At first, there is the inward turn uh, where Babylon is destroyed by the beasts, and we talked about that in 17. And then the Lord Jesus at his appearing kills the beasts and those in subjection to them. But then what about the dragon, that ancient serpent, that beast of old, the false prophet, and that the false prophet in Babylon served? Well, let's look ahead briefly just to see what is said about that in chapter 20. Chapter 20 describes this. Remember, 20 does not follow chapter 19 chronologically but it repeats and it provides for us another perspective on the dragon and his plan and his judgment. And so chapter 20 is the start, actually, of the seventh visionary cycle. But we'll talk more about that next time. But look here at verse 7 of chapter 20. And then when the thousand years are ended, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are under the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, and its beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and, and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, that is the final recapitulation of this end times judgment. But when will this happen? Well, it's the same day, the same time that is described in chapter 19. It will happen when Christ returns. It will happen on the last day when the rider on the white horse comes. It will happen on the same day when the beast and the false prophet and all who belong to them will be judged. Again, it happens when Christ returns. He'll return to do many things to rescue those who, are, who belong to him, to, to redeem and to, to save finally those who are under assault, and to pour out his wrath upon his enemies and to cast the devil himself into the lake of fire, to, to be, quote, tormented day and night forever and ever again. This is an eternal punishment. But when Christ returns, he will judge. And after that, he'll make all things new. But here's the thing. If we assume the book of Revelation is organized chronologically, we'll end up being very confused. Throughout the whole book, really, we'll be confused throughout, not knowing what to make of something like the, the birth of the Messiah in chapter 12, as well as all of the littered throughout book descriptions of the end day, the end time. But we'll especially be confused here when it comes to chapters 18, 19, and 20. If we try to fit all of this on some sort of chronological timelines, if we're just reading it, what's happening from start to finish. Because uh, in chapter 20, you're probably aware that's the passage that has that famously debated section on the millennium. And so it is far better to see that the book of Revelation is organized thematically rather than chronologically. It's, it's organized through visionary cycles, and then it recapitulates, providing for us different perspectives of the same time period of time, which in this case, what we've been looking at now, is that last day when Christ returns. But broadly speaking, the book of Revelation is showing us things and how they will be the whole time between Christ's first and second coming. It tells a story. It paints a picture about the tribulation that the church will go through in this world and how things will finally go in the very end. It exposes man's need for Christ. And it shows what awaits those who fail to lay hold of Christ here and now while they have the opportunity to do so. So for just a moment, let's look back in... Before we look at this description of Christ, let's look back at Revelation chapter 12. Notice how in chapter 12, 1, really, if you're able to remember, all the way through the middle of chapter 20, we're having a story told. And it's giving us more information from different angles or perspectives as we go on. And this really happens even from the very beginning of the book. But it really, there's a, there's a point that's good to start from in chapter 12. In Revelation 12, 1, we're introduced to a woman where we read clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Um, she is a standout character in the narrative. And who is this woman? If you remember, she symbolizes Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was pregnant with him. But more than that, she symbolizes Israel, who was a kind of pregnant with the promise of Christ until he did come. And even more than that, she represents Eve, 
who heard the promise of God when, she, when, he, when the, he spoke to the serpent who deceived her when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Eve was in a way pregnant with Christ as she carried within her womb the promise of God concerning the Redeemer who would come from her seed. The woman of Revelation 12 who is Eve, Israel, Mary was pregnant with a child and she was being harassed, even harassed before the child was born. And who was it that harassed her? It's a great red dragon we read with seven heads and ten horns uh, and on its head seven diadems. That's verse 3. In 12.9, we're told that is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the, of the old world, the whole world. So that red dragon, is, is John tells us, is symbolic of Satan, that serpent who deceived Eve in the garden, tying it, tying it back to that. And you know the history of Israel as contained in the Old Testament. Um, we can say in the language of Revelation that if we were to read Genesis all the way through Malachi, I mean, we could go farther, even actually Genesis all the way through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, that the dragon pursues the woman. But she's kept by God, being preserved by him in the wilderness. We read that in chapter 12 as well. This dragon's goal was to devour the Christ child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But look at verse 5. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. Speaking then of the ascension of Christ, post-death, burial, and resurrection, as contained in Acts chapter 1. So you would think the dragon has failed. The dragon didn't do what he set out to do. The mother had the child, and the, but the child has now ascended and is out, out of the reach of the dragon. But the battle between the dragon and the woman and the child wasn't over. We read in verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So there's a conflict then. There's a battle that rages between the dragon, who is Satan, and Christ. Uh, the dragon was confined. He was bound, in the language of Revelation 20, to the earth at Christ's first coming when he was first caught up to heaven, where he's now enthroned and reigning. Remember that from Revelation 5. But on earth, the woman's other offspring, the brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus through faith, they find themselves under attack now. They are pursued by the dragon, who is enraged now, knowing that his defeat is imminent. And so the dragon uses the beast from the sea, political powers that persecute, and the beast from the land, false prophet, and the social and economic influence that are available, and the prostitute who rides upon the beast from the land, which is the seductiveness of the world, to war against the people of God, the, the other offspring of the, women, of the woman contained here, which is really you know, the, the promise of God that is rooted in the Messiah. These three were introduced to us successively uh, in chapters 13 all the way through 17, this unholy trinity, the dread dragon and the, the, and the beast, and then, you know, which is all one of them being the false prophet. Notice where we have here in 17, 18, 19, and 20, though. Each of these enemies of God are removed from the scene in reverse order that they were introduced. First, the prostitute is brought to nothing. The beast that she once rode upon turned to devour her, and the people of the earth lamented her fall. We read that at the end of chapter 17. 
And then chapter 18 describes that fall in greater detail. Secondly, the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire, as described in chapter 19. And then thirdly, the dragon himself, will be, who empowered and motivated these three, will also be judged. And this is described in Revelation 20 with the words in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Friends, this is, this is important to understand. You need to be aware of this as you read this book over the years in your devotional reading time. When the sermon series is far out of reach of your memory, even. Because the book is ordered thematically, not chronologically. And because if we make a mistake and think chronologically, then we miss what the Lord is showing to us here. Because with it all, what it's, what, what's happening here is we're having all of our attentions being focused upon Christ, who is our champion and our king. And when the book ends with a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the great story of redemption and the victory of God is a happy ending. We all love happy endings, don't we? You know, it bothers me some when I watch a movie and, and I read a story that doesn't have a happy ending, that may paint a, a picture of a temporal reality, because it's true, not everything always has a happy ending here in our lives on earth and the, the lives that we go through. But the re- eternal reality that Revelation reminds us of is that God wins and he will save his people. It is, it is the happiest of all happy endings. And it's why I think we intrinsically just love happy endings, because we're meant to. We're meant to see God making everything right at the end of history. The enemies of God seem at first to be so powerful, so terrifying, so ferocious. They're the seven-horned, or seven-headed dragon and ten-horned dragon, the seven-headed and ten-horned beast, the beast who speaks like the dragon, the prostitute whose seductiveness even caused the apostle John to marvel at her when he first saw her. And if we make the mistake, friends, to be so temporally minded, fixed on the here and now, Christ seems to be to us distant. He was, you know, long ago caught up to heaven, crucified, buried, and raised and ascended. And we don't see him now with our eyes. What we see are our enemies. We feel their power. We're caught up in their trouble often, and make no mistake as well, one of the biggest sources of that trouble is our very own flesh that is always with us. And so we must be more heavenly minded than that, and Revelation is reminding us of this. It's easy to get caught up in the worry and feel overwhelmed when things aren't working out for us. But what does God's word reveal? Our Lord will return one day, and when he does, He will slay all of his and all of our enemies with the word of his mouth. And that's what we have being pictured here with the great supper of God and the marriage feast of the Lamb. We read that John, so look back at verse 11 now in 19, where the Lord is pictured. We read that John saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the kind of champion war horse that a conquering king would ride. The one sitting upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Christ, our King, that is being described here. Who else is faithful and true? His eyes are like a flame of fire, we read, because all 
that is visible and even invisible to us, he sees. And he will judge with purity in the end. And the, the purification capability of a refiner's fire that removes all impurities. That's what his eyes are like. And on his head are many diadems, which, if you remember, the dragon and the beast are said to have crowns with diadems on it, but they're numbered. There are seven diadems and ten diadems. But on the Lord Jesus, those are all counterfeit. On the Lord Jesus, there's many diadems. He is the true king, the king of kings, and the only king. And he puts the ten counterfeit diadems worn by the dragon and his beast to shame. The point being is he's far greater than they are. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. For though we, the church, know Christ truly, we, even in this, as, we're, as it's being described to us in this imagery, can't comprehend his power and glory fully. I'm reminded even of what our confession says in chapter 2.1, that God is incomprehensible. The God of the only God knows himself fully and completely, and he alone knows himself that way. We read, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, not the blood of the atonement. Um, some, some look at it that way, but I don't think that makes sense there. Uh, this is the one who will tread out the great winepress of the wrath of God we read about in the seventh uh, bowl judgment in Revelation 14. Uh, this is God's wrath being pictured here. The name by which he is called is the word of God, verse 13. It is God's word that will stand in the end, friends, and he is God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And this great warrior king we read is not alone. This is amazing. But he has the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on horses. Now, if we look at other texts in the Bible, in the New Testament, it speaks of angels coming with him. In Matthew, uh, I think also in Zechariah as well in the Old Testament. Um, there's a couple other places in Thessalonians as well, but that doesn't seem to be the point here. This here doesn't, don't seem to be angels. These are those arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We read about that earlier, how, we're, how those who conquer in Christ are clothed with this kind of linen. This is a congregation of redeemed saints that is with the Lord. What an amazing picture as well when you consider they look like the king. Notice what he's dressed in. He, uh, this, this robe, granted his robe is dipped in blood, but these are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and they too are on white horses just like he is on a white horse. These are his people. They have been so redeemed and justified that here now at the final day, they even look like him. To a degree, redeemed from the earth, who have been caught up to meet him on the last day, like we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. They are the bride of Christ. And as we read last couple weeks ago, she has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's 19, 7 and 8. Those redeemed of the Lord, the ones who are said to be at the marriage of the Lamb, they now return with the Lord to conquer with him. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, verse 15. That's why his robe is, is stained the way it is. But it's Christ himself who does the destroying. It isn't us, it isn't the people. It is Christ by the word of his mouth. This is a fulfillment of that great messianic psalm, Psalm 2, 
which says, and we'll sing this in just a moment. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest it be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's a, that's a kindness of God to announce that is what's happening. And he did that through the pen of David many you know, millennia before what will happen at the end of the age, which this is descriptive of. And so flee to Christ is part of the message here that we read. Lastly, we read, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, the Lord Jesus, that's verse 16, and his work of mediation is prophet, priest, and king. And as a true king of all creation, he leads his people in victory, as we read here. Brothers and sisters, this is the story that followers of Christ the world over need to be reminded of. They need to hear this again and again. These are the truths that we need if we're to stand up in the face of persecution, in in the face of false teaching, and against the seductiveness of the world. Look at the end of the matter, friends. The things of this world that seem attractive to us, look at their end. Don't go the way of the prostitute. Her end is destruction. Her path leads only to death. Prestige, personal feelings, great wealth, notoriety, none of these things are evil in and of themselves. But if we chase them, if Babylon deceives us with them, what's a wrap? Don't be seduced by these things. Think also of the end of the false prophet whose words capture so many. He says, you know, all religions have merit. Uh, Devote yourself to Allah, to Buddha, to Krishna, to whoever, and you'll be saved. Uh, Just try your best to be good and kind. Love people as they are. God is not like what the Bible says. He's changed. You know, it's just a man-made book. The law of God doesn't really matter. All of that lies. And many other things as well. Don't be deceived. We're saying the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the day, at the end of the age. And pay no attention to his smooth words and his flattering speech. Listen is said to God's word, which stands forever. Look to Christ and trust in him, for he is the word of God. He is the one who will slay his enemies with a double-edged sword that comes from his mouth. Give heed to God's word. Obey the word of Christ if you wish to have life. Reject the words of the false prophet. His end is destruction. His path only leads to death. Not that obeying the words of Christ will grant you life, but that is the natural response to what, to what one does when they have Christ. And what about those who persecute you? What about those who make you feel shame for wanting to glorify God? Who want to cast you out? Who want to mock and ignore you, and who don't include you? What about those who may even kill you? 
What about them? What, what do you do? Well, think of their end. Think of what Christ will do to those who have assaulted his beloved bride when he returns for her on the last day. Uh, you men that are here who are married, uh, just think, think of it. Or even you young men uh, who are not yet married. But imagine someone assaults your wife. What do you do? You know, everything in your power to stop and, stop and vindicate your wife, of course. And know that Christ's love for his bride is greater than the examples that we have in ourselves. Of course, you know, it's popular today to talk only of a God who is love and mercy. And certainly God is loving and merciful. But he is also holy and righteous and just. And if you do not believe in a God who will in the end judge, then you do not have the God of scriptures. But an idol that you have erected for yourself in your mind and in your heart. If you do not believe in a Christ who will in the end judge, who is the chef, the waiter, and the guest of honor at the great supper of God, then you do not have the true Christ, but a false Christ who is a product of a worldly imagination. Ultimately, a delusion from the false prophet of Revelation. Friends, God and Christ will judge in the end. The scriptures cannot be any more clear here. And this is a comfort to the people of God, particularly to those who have experienced persecution. True, we are to pray, pray for our enemies. True, we are to love them. And it is the knowledge that God and his Christ will set things right in the end that actually enables us to, to truly do that. To not just offer lip service to do it, but to truly do it. It's not ours to take vengeance. That's God's job. It's not ours to pour out wrath. What we see here is that Christ will. It, it is with this knowledge, and it must be this, that enables us to even love those who persecute us and to pray for them and to compel them to come to Christ for forgiveness. And precisely why? It is because we all once were like that as well, ready to persecute those who had faith. And if you've never been that, or you're not that right now, well, the only reason that is true is because of the riches of his kindness and grace towards you in Christ Jesus. Because Christ died for his enemies. He didn't just die for good people, well-meaning people. He died for those who were his enemies to reconcile us to himself and to save us from his wrath. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice through God, or in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if a person remains an enemy of Christ, then it is the great supper of God that awaits him. Jesus at the end of the age will be a terrifying sight. The rider on the white horse with eyes full of fire and a sword out of his mouth. But if you're trusting in Christ now, if you believe in him for salvation and all that entails, then it's the marriage supper of the Lamb that awaits you. 
And Christ is happily your king on the white horse who has redeemed you and fights for you all the way to the end. But make no mistake, friends. Everybody is at one of those suppers. There is a table, there is a chair at the table of each of those suppers for all people. Which one will you be at? Rest in Christ, friends. Rest in the glorious Christ. We don't have to clean up ourselves to come to him, but he bids us to come to himself and he prepares us to be with him for eternity and he cleans us, he sanctifies us. All praise unto him. Let's pray. Holy God, we do thank you for the great love with which you have loved us, knowing that you died for your enemies. That that all people should have a table at the great supper of God where vultures, birds of prey will gorge on the flesh of the enemies. It is a terrifying picture, Lord, a terrifying sight to confess. We don't really want to think about it because of all that it entails even. But to know, Lord, that we won't be there, that we have something far greater, a happy ending in you, the marriage supper of the Lamb, all because of the life that you lived and the death that you died to be our substitutionary atoning sacrifice there upon the cross and then to rise on the third day with victory for all those who trust in you, who are chosen in you from before the foundation of the world is a great joy to us, God. Help us to understand all the riches of Christ in the gospel and help us to be zealous, Lord, to tell others of this truth. Uh, it is a, going to be a dark day when someone's time runs out and they aren't in Christ, Lord. And let us, let us have boldness and confidence and a great love for the lost, Lord, so that we might share with them the truth. Even after they've rejected us many times, God, help us to not give up in that, knowing that our own lives, I'm sure... It's not just me, but I'm sure others as well rejected the truth as it was in you many times before it was you effectually called us and revealed us to yourself, giving us new life in, in Christ through the work of the Spirit. So, Lord, help us, God, to remember these things. Help us to understand your word and fill us with gladness for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.